Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavner. I'm here today with my friend and colleague Michael Dwyer. Today is Sunday, it is the 14th of March. Michael, how have you been? I have been fine. That sounded a little bit uh, a little bit like you've just given up. I don't know if it's just me. I've been talking to a few people. And maybe it's the fact that spring is springing. You know, spring is sprung, the grass is riz. I wonder where the birdies is. But God, when he announced the other day that it would be at least May before we see barbers shops open and hairdressers and whatever. God, we've been in this since Halloween or something, I can't remember, with two or three days off for Christmas. And I'm just, oh, it's a cyclical thing. I'm sure I'll get over it. But I think it's partly that thing of spring that one wants to be alive and out and one is full once more with the rising sap of urgency of life. And, you know, maybe I need to start self-medicating. The first thing I wanted to touch on, and I was sent this by a couple of different listeners. I'd missed this myself. It relates back to the episode last week where we were talking about, uh, we'd both been talking to people in Britain uh, about the possibility of Ireland getting vaccines from the UK. And what we were both hearing was that things had gone sour, but the reason it had gone sour was personalised. It wasn't that there was an anti-Ireland feeling. We were all hearing it was actually directed at Simon Coveney. And it's just a rumour. The only reason we actually talked about it is we were kind of comparing notes. And I mentioned that it, I thought it was odd that it actually was about Simon Coveney. And Michael went, oh, it's exactly what I'm hearing. So we told him mentioning. Yeah, it was just, it was odd that this, both the people I talked to and then since then, a couple of others, and the people you specifically mentioned an animus, a personal animus against Simon Coveney. Now, so this was, as I said, listener sent me on an article in Reuters. It went up yesterday. It's headlined, Irish Foreign Minister says UK guilty of perverse nationalism over US deal. And what it is, is that Simon Coveney uh, said that Britain was demonstrating perverse nationalism by seeking to reach a trade deal with the United States before the European Union, and that he then went on to question whether or not it was a trustworthy partner. He said that um, this idea that Britain can get there first is narrow-minded thinking, frankly. It's a perverse nationalism when actually Britain and the EU should work together as partners. He wants the UK, the EU and Canada to come together to reach a joint trade deal with the United States. Reuters goes on to very helpfully make the point that the EU does not currently have plans for a major US trade deal, which would make it quite difficult for the EU, the UK and Canada to negotiate a major US trade deal. Well, if you're the UK and you want one, it does feel a bit like you're being asked to wait around for a later bus, and a bus that you're not even sure when it's going to arrive. And then he then he just went on and, you know, just general, we can't be sure, we can't be sure how trustworthy uh, Britain is going to be in general, because Britain uh, had delayed imposing checks that were required by the Brexit deal on some food products that were going into Northern Ireland. Now, the British did this because, or at least they say they did this, because they were concerned about potential shortages of particular food in Northern Ireland. But mm-hmm. that did cause a lot of pushback from the EU. And people are saying that's not actually why they're doing it. They're doing it for all these other reasons. But whatever the truth of it. But yeah, no, I, I it was great timing, though. We, um, we on a day say, well, actually, we're here at Simon Coveney. And the next day, Simon Coveney comes out and attacks the UK 
for daring to try and negotiate a trade agreement with a third country, saying it should come behind the EU. Why would it come behind the EU? It left the EU. Why would it negotiate trade deals with the EU? When one of the reasons it left was to do precisely this. That was part of the the offer of uh, Brexit, was that they were going to go ahead and do all of these independent trade deals with Australia and New Zealand and in South Africa and in South America and the United States and Canada and Japan and all these countries independently and on its own. And everybody said, oh, you can't do it, you can't do it, you won't do it. It's not just that, though, Gary, is it? That's a, that's a fairly personalised attack. I mean, this is, this is not the language of diplomacy. If you, actually, if you actually want somebody to engage with you and to behave in a certain way, if you want them to come on board with a plan, you don't say these people are untrustworthy. This is the language of, of somebody who actually isn't looking for an outcome. He's just looking for an, an, an excuse to engage in what is fundamentally vulgar abuse. The great thing is, is that they're reporting on that based on an interview Simon Coveney did with the Times. Would you like to guess what the uh, headline of that interview was in the Times, Michael? Go ahead. Simon Coveney, I'm a friend of the UK. We need to fix this. <laughs> and the subheading is the Anglophile Irish Foreign Minister fears Britain is hurting itself. God, you can feel the care from here. The disinterested, empathetic ma- attitude of the Anglophilic minister. But it was actually, it was quite interesting when he, what he said when you, you look at the original Times interview. Because when he's talking about perverse nationalism and that they should work together as partners, he says there is enough division and competition globally rather than creating more locally. And he's saying that the EU and the UK should not compete for attention in Washington, looking to be the first to do a trade deal. When again, the EU is not trying to do a major trade deal with the US right now. <laughs> I, I love, I love, if this is what he's saying publicly, can you imagine him meeting some of, let's say, the British, um, the British cabinet and sitting down and telling them this and that they should negotiate with the EU in a trade deal? A row of blank faces and then someone just going, but why? And what trade deal are you talking about? What trade deal are you doing Sweat just starts to drip down him because he started talking on the assumption there would be no follow-up questions. Yeah, he kind of, you know, it must be difficult if you're a politician in the government in Ireland and then you find yourself in a different situation where you're dealing with people who actually are maybe politically slightly competent or dealing with journalists who haven't uh, bought into the, into the cult. I mean, it's a bit like, do you remember that interview that Ben Shapiro did with Andrew Neil? Where Andrew Neil just tore him apart casually. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think it must be a bit like that—a culture shock when you're not used to having anybody actually ask you questions. It must be. Diff- I, I tell you what, I, t- I suspect uh, again this pure, pure speculation, pure speculation based on cost. That one of the reasons, one of the ways that the stuff is not actually in, in meetings that Simon may have had with ministers or governmental figures, but rather uh, contacts, perhaps informal, perhaps behind scenes perhaps indirect with the anti-brexit groups where he may have bad-mouthed uh the bona fides or the intentions uh or the aspirations of the of the of the brexiteers it definitely seems to be the case that whether or not this was in any way to do with the absence of an offer of uh, vaccines coming there 
this is seems I'm confident that it's true that members of the ERG or the European Reform Group have it in for him big time uh, because of a whole a series of comments, public and private, that they feel very much slighted and hurt, hurt feelings, Gary, hurt feelings. Even Brexiteers have feelings, you know, and they do have memories. Yeah, and then of course he went in to start talking about Brexit and you know how he didn't like it and he didn't think the uh, it had been handled honestly. Oh God! Because you know what what's important is that Ireland involve itself again in a divisive internal conversation for your country. That's what we need to be involved in. Makes perfect sense. The end of the interview was perfect, Michael. Absolutely perfect. He. Because at the end of it, what he said, Michael, after just crapping on England <laughs> and talking about Brexit and just making a fool of himself, he then says that, well, what what he wants to see, Michael, is the Ireland forge new links, such as by putting forward a uh, United World Cup bid in 2030. Yeah, yeah, that, that's great. So you, I, I love the idea that the purpose of this interview was to promote that World Cup bid. It, this, the purpose was to build bridges, restore the former amity and harmony that existed between the two countries. When, and I quote here, one person says to me, yes, you have to remember, Michael, we're talking about a situation where Anglo-Irish agreements are probably, Anglo-Irish relations are at probably their lowest point since 1921. <laughs> you know, 1921. And Jack Lynch had established army camps on the border to a to provide uh, uh, succor for the refugees that he fleeing the pogroms in the north. And this was perceived to be the lowest point in Irish relations since 1921. And so Simon goes in to heal those divisions, to put balm on the wounds and pour oil on the waters. And that's how he did it. God bless him. Oh, fantastic work, Simon. This is the essence of pure pure diplomacy here so what you want to do michael is you it's it's effectively like being a pickup artist you want to neg them till their confidence is so low that they'll take <laughs> the olive branch that you offer them of the world cup so just shit on them for you know 30 solid minutes you're like it's a perverse nationalism say the brexit will be seen as a historic mistake then start talking about how oh yes the vaccination program is going quite well over there but, you know, it's not proof that Brexit is going well and it's not proof that leaving the EU was a good idea. And then when they're at their lowest ebb, then you offer them the World Cup. Uh, Might work with Ireland or Belgium, maybe Serbia. I, don't I, know. I can see a politician coming to Ireland and you know offering us a terrible deal. And when everyone looks like they're going to say no, he just says, but everyone will like you if you do this. And just right on board, whereas the British, not really that fond of actually being liked. They don't really care. Well, it's, it's, I don't know. Everybody likes to be liked. I, I think the difference is that the, the English don't really care. You like me, you don't like me. Hmm. Back to what, I mean, it's not quite the same thing. What is it? Palmerston or wherever it was famously. Britain has neither friends nor enemies, merely interests. Which I also think is a very sensible way of looking at international politics, but that's a whole different subject. If the purpose of this trip was to improve relations... It was a massive waste of time at its very best. But I shouldn't complain about other people wasting massive amounts of time, Michael. Actually, I did the calculations for how much time has been wasted by listeners of this show. Yeah. 
just if you you know if you take the amount of episodes listened by the amount of listeners how many man hours have been spent listening to this show and michael we on our own have destroyed decades of work it's it's good to know we've achieved something but uh any idea how many days we've actually helped them waste decades i mean literally decades cool yeah no when you run the amount of hours it's it's actually it's it's a wonderful demonstration of the you know the power of small numbers but I know, literally, literally decades of wasted time. The world is, I mean, I think we can say objectively a worse place for us having existed. Well, that's a, that's such a upbeat, positive assessment. Well, yeah. In decades of, of time wasted, do you think none of those people would have done something useful enough to counterweigh the show's entire existence? That seems arrogant, Michael. No, I, I don't. Arrogant. Realistic. I think... Millions and there are billions and billions of people on this planet, and I imagine there's around seven of them doing anything useful. <laughs> but that doesn't mean they're not all lovely. There is one thing, and I know I was just talking about wasting people's time, but I feel I have to waste slightly more because I wanted to thank the Irish Examiner, Michael. It, I think gratitude is a very important thing, and you know what? People don't send thank you cards enough these days, or little, little these tokens. And the Irish Examiner has done you a very good turn, Gary. It has, although I will explain for for new listeners, I'm not terribly fond of the Irish Examiner because about two years ago at this point, we brought some students over to America to a conservative, uh, a Young Americans for Freedom uh, event. And it was, was, I mean, there were sitting senators there. Mike Pence was there, Ted Cruz. It is a very mainstream conservative event in the united states there is nothing weird or wonderful or extreme or wiggy about it at all from a group which i believe has been racially integrated longer than the democratic party yes that ended up getting reported in various um in various newspapers over here meps and tds ended up involved in making comments on it and the irish examiner ran a number of things on it and one of them was an editorial and there had been a mass shooting. I'm not sure if it was in, I think it was in America, it could have been Australia at about that time, over the weekend. And they said that the students we brought over to America were kindred spirits to the, uh, to those shooters, to those mass killers. And, uh, I've just, I've had a small bone of contention with the examiner ever since. It was a shameful thing. That whole incident was a shameful and disgusting affair where you had filigators piling on filigators in a way which I found Nasty and bad. Also, these people are always talking about punching up. And when this was the most cynical, disreputable exercise in punching down, it also was just a rank display of ignorance and intolerance. They knew nothing about this group. They didn't bother to inform themselves. The group of students we sent over, by the way, was a group of diverse people with diverse opinions. We brought them over. We didn't ask them to sign letters of... In, of conversion that they hand themselves over and said that they had been saved and they now believed in the gospel of the market no we brought them over to give them an experience we brought them over to give them an experience i think they all enjoyed it i think they all learned something from it i would happily do it again and we intend to do it again but it was just it was horrible it was a really was it a surprise i don't suppose it was a surprise but it was an unfortunate confirmation for us of certain aspects that we had perhaps suspected about elements of Irish media and Irish political life, but it was no, it was it was no more pleasant because that it was unsurprising. It, it was deeply unsurprising. 
it also it, it started with Hugh O'Connell in the Irish Independent, and that I think was also pretty thin on the motive side of things. But anyway, they've finally done something positive, possibly inadvertently, but they've done something positive. So, the ISAG stuff. Talking about it for ages. Series of leaks. ISAG went dark. Refused to comment. The mainstream media wouldn't touch it for various reasons. Some that were just, were not going to happen. And some because they couldn't get any of the members of ISAG to talk about it. Or at least that what they were saying. The Irish Examiner managed to get one of the members of ISAG to talk about it. And in talking about it, now the, the article is headlined, Zero Covid Group Rejects Accusations of Scaremongering. It references Ronan Mullen bringing up the gripped article in the Shannon. It doesn't reference the gripped article at all. Don't really care about that. But in trying to produce what is very clearly some sort of defensive puff piece on ISAG, ISAG had to admit that they sent some of the material we said they sent. In particular, they had to admit that they sent the document which we said said um, that they were to review and internalize a series of rules drawn from Sololinsky's radicals. And there were the rules drawn from Sololinsky's radicals and then explanations and extensions of them. And one of them was look for ways to increase uncertainty, anxiety. And so they, they've now admitted that they sent that. And <laughs> there is a somewhat of a disconnect between the text and the headline of Zero Covid Group Rejects Accusation of Scaremongering. Because there's not really any part of the article where they reject or explain that they're scaremongering. In fact, they don't touch it at all. The only thing they do is insult Roland Mullen. I'm not even, maybe not insult him, but act like a kind of a prick towards him. And we had read in the documents that they had said attack people, not institutions, because people hurt quicker. And don't forget the power of ridicule. So obviously, I mean, they were just still following the rules of the radicals, Saul's prescription of how to react in these situations. They're still following it to the T. So yeah, you have an you have a journalist coming to you and asking you about these rules, and you decide that your response is going to be, "I tend not to pay much attention to Ronan. I hope that does not upset him." Which I read, and I was just like, "You're kind of going out of your way to be a prick." Yep, like you. Just kind of smug and prickish, and it's not going to help you. But uh, yeah, then he just says that Barack Obama also shared that material, and it was a reference for community groups. And ISAG does not advocate attacking people over institutions. And then says, we haven't attacked Simon Harris and Stephen Donnelly. Wow. And that's the article, by the way. That's it. There is nothing of use in here other than giving the examiner the ability to say they covered the story. I would say explicitly done to protect Isaac. Could not tell you that for a fact. Someone comes to you, Michael, and admits that they sent this material that says that they should increase uncertainty and doubt and they should attack people. Admits to you he has sent it. And you don't ask, okay, well, if you didn't mean to, that those things should be implemented, why did you say review and internalize above it? What did you mean? But instead just sort of goes, well, we're done here. And also, for those who haven't followed, been following this stuff, we won't go into it now, but we can also just advert to the fact that there was a lot more in the material as well about their tactics regarding length of time and the nature of lockdowns and when we could have, when they should tell the politicians 
we could be free even if we didn't know that and how long it would actually have to take the numbers of the case numbers that we actually have to be operating for for zero covid to work but the numbers that they would accept for politicians would have would maybe more likely to take but once we got them on the hook we could always bring that up just there was a, a lot more stuff in that which he has effectively by not denying it and referring to and confirming the existence of these documents it seems to me he's pretty well confirmed the accuracy of the content of of the whole package and not a word not a question nothing about that i'm not sure how this interview came about and i could be wrong that it was a deliberately defensive piece it could just be that you know they were in a situation where the examiner couldn't ask him any questions or it was just a bad interview and they didn't get much from him but i would i would lean towards the former before i'd lean towards the latter but from stain's perspective from isag's perspective absolutely terrible idea because you can be smart but you can't be too smart and to put into print and into the record that you sent some of that material then leads to well how much of the rest of the material did you send and okay if that was true and gripped were right and you're just you're not even saying what we said about it was wrong you're actually just insulting mullen and seeming to assume that that's the end of this what exactly else is there there? And really the only important thing in this um, in this article, and I will write up an article probably for tomorrow that will be ISAG founder admits truth of gripped reports. The only important fact in this article is that Staines has now publicly admitted, and Anthony Staines, Professor Anthony Staines, one of the founders of ISAG, he has now admitted that that material was real. The choice of the response, there's an, I can't remember it now, but there's a Latin tag which translates roughly as it would have been better if you had stayed, if you'd kept your mouth shut <clears throat> and appeared a fool rather than opening it and confirming everybody's, confirming. In this case, it would have been better, I think, if he had kept his mouth shut and appeared a prick rather than opening his mouth and confirming it. Because, and that's obviously just my opinion, but I think that statement... I mean, you could hear the dripping, patronising, condescending contempt. Oh, I don't listen to what wrote. Completely avoiding any of the substantial issues in the accusations that uh, Roland Mullen made in the Shannon. I mean, you couldn't, you could, could you call it an ad hominem attack? I said, it's a form of ad hominem, I suppose. But it didn't, it didn't, uh, I didn't do any, it didn't paint a very nice, picture of the man he himself may be a charming man in personal and private life i have no idea i wouldn't know him from a hole in the wall but regards his public persona that really didn't do him any help at all actually i see that uh, anthony is currently tweeting out his support for the recent protests in the uk uh which kind of odd given his you know, massive commitment to zero covid and as part of that people have to be locked down and you can't just have people wandering around the place at protests well i suppose it's like these things always that the right kinds of protests have sort of a, a prophylactic effect it the morality and the intent of the protesters protects them from the virus in the way for example the the blm the black lives matter protesters in the last summer were protected from infection and protected from spreading the contagion by the sincerity of their beliefs and the purity of their hearts. 
those horrible neo-Nazi fascist people <clears throat> that were protesting against the lockdown now, however, I mean, even if none of them had the virus, they probably would spontaneously create it, Gary, and spread it throughout the city, like the Black Death sweeping across Florence. So it's, it's, just, it's, it's a technical, scientific thing, Gary. I don't expect the listeners necessarily will understand it, but Professor Staines will understand it. Well, he must do. I mean, either that or you know, there's some political reason why this would happen. <laughs> you think? That's always, you know, that's how it starts, Michael. You start respectable and then before you know it, you're passing around Sololinsky and talking about how people need to take back the streets. Yeah, sweep these people off the streets. Mo- marshal your forces because the guards and the ballot box aren't going to work for you. But that's another story from another group. But no, I just thought I would. It's just a... a interesting aside one thing i actually did want to briefly mention people are talking about the the recent protest in the uk have not paid any attention to it actually don't really know what's happening over there seems to be a massive feminist issue uh involving a woman who a police officer has been arrested for her her murder but i saw a lot of people they were passing around comparisons of the police picking up women and taking them out of the protest and comparing that against a uh, recent should we say, celebration by Rangers fans where the police had held back and they're like, how can these two things be explained? And I can explain them in a very simple way. Uh, Rangers fans and football... Sorry, not Rangers fans. That's unfair to Rangers fans to some degree. Football hooligans like violence. And if you try and go into the crowd and just pick one of them up, they're not going to go with you. In fact most likely you're going to have a fight. And this is not a new idea, like the strong do what they will and the weak will accept what they must. If you have the ability to use physical force, other people will be less hesitant or will be more hesitant to use physical force against you because then violence will erupt. The police are able to just go into this protest and pick people out of it. You can't do that with football hooligans. They will try and murder you. It has been established throughout history that football supporters in in the city of Glasgow, of all stripes, have a robust and rambunctious uh, attitude to celebrations and maybe less respect for the police than they really ought to at times when they are caught up in the joyous moment of celebration. They behave in ways that they probably wouldn't behave in their normal quotidian lives. They're not, Michael, some might say, they don't tend to be lovely middle-class people who would hesitate before glassing a police officer. <laughs> I, I really, I mean, I don't want to stereotype a group of Glaswegian footballers because there are people I'm willing to be, I'm willing to be trenchant about, uh, but they're mostly living in places where they'll never hear this. And even though Glaswegians are unlikely to, I'm not willing to take that risk. I remember having a holiday in the West of Scotland once and I couldn't help but notice the number of pubs that had signs up banning discussion all the use of football colors and indeed in some places even the discussion of football which made me think that there was a a, deg- a degree of passion involved in the supporting of your local football club in, in 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 scotland and particularly in places like glasgow that was um that it might lead to some of the brighter if you're pg woodhouse you say excessive some excesses from the brighter spirits. And I think the police just recognised, you know, sometimes you don't provoke it. I don't know, did you ever read C.S. Lewis's autobiography? 
it's already it's, it's only a slim little thing. It's about the, his his life up to his his conversion really. But there's a lovely little moment in it because he's a university graduate. He ends up as an a, an officer. It sort of it was an automatic thing, and he was in the in the in the trenches there, and he was in a, a regiment from the West Devon or Wiltshire or somewhere. And he uh, he would say, you know, there'd be long periods where nothing much would happen, and then he see one on one occasion he looked and he, he could see in the trenches, and the trenches very often weren't that far away, and in the nearby German trenches he could see movement, and he said to his sergeant, who was a professional soldier, long time in the army, and he said. Maybe we should pop a couple of grenades over there, should uh, to which his sergeant or you can imagine sort of rubbing his chin and replying in that sort of wonderful West Country drawl, something to the effect, Aye, sir, you, we could do that. But the thing is, if we start lobbing grenades over there, happen they might start to lob some grenades over here. So I think the police might have taken the attitude, you know. If we start going in and annoying them maybe they'll start to decide to annoy us, in a way. So, you have a, a kind of a, a, a modus vivendi. You can live together, which is a, a different kind of experience from the, the kind of protests that maybe they were policing in, in London. I think it's not complicated, really, why. One, pe- one crowd is more likely to bait the head off you than the other. No, what I think you can find, Michael, uh, without looking terribly hard, some examples of, shall we say, robust and wide-ranging police actions against football hooligans. I would point out, if we have any listeners who are themselves football hooligans, I place no moral judgment on your wanton use of violence. I used to go to San Siro occasionally, but I used to go to the nice seats, not the seats where there would be trouble. And on a couple of occasions, you'd see these the, the police of the Caribbean area, whatever, come up, and they had these batons, these long, sort of flexible batons. They were like they looked like they were four or five feet long. By God, Gary, they laid into these people. It was robust. It was very robust indeed. I used to think, God, the guards at home wouldn't know what they're at. Well, actually, wasn't there wasn't there quite an interesting time a couple of years ago where one of the the hooligan the firms came over here and got absolutely slaughtered by the guards? Oh, that's quite well. I I know a long time ago now there was the the there had the infamous incident when Jack Jack Charlton was still manager of the foot, national football team and England came over to play a friendly in Lansdowne Road. Ireland scored, and almost immediately after that, there was a group of English hooligans who were up on the upper stand in Lansdowne and started ripping stuff up. And I was told afterwards by a, a mate of mine who was, who was a guard who was seconded uh, to it, and he said that they were basically, they were, what's the, kettled? Is that it? They're, mm. they're re- restricted to a certain area. And they were basically kettled, and then they were bet from Lansdowne to the docks and from the docks onto the boat and left in such a manner where it was unlikely they would ever holiday in Ireland again. Ah, uh, that's that good old-fashioned comedic police brutality. Yeah, how we did laugh. So moving on from, from the guards, which we somehow ended up on, there is a story, and it's still in development, it's very much up in the air, and it's unclear what the impact of it is. However, it is absolutely not going to be repe- reported anywhere else in Ireland. And I myself wouldn't have reported it if I hadn't seen some of the places that were reporting it outside it. The European Medicines Agency in December of last year reported that they had been the victim of a um, of a data hack. 
and a number of their documents, hundreds upon hundreds of pages of documents from the EMA related to the authorization uh, of some of the vaccines, I think particularly the Pfizer vaccine, were had been taken. They were then disseminated out to a collection of academics and journalists. The documents or parts, uh, pieces based on the documents have now started to be published. And one of them is in the BMJ, the British Medical Journal, which is, if they're reporting on it, it's a serious matter. They know what they're talking about. They're experts in this area. And what they're saying is that um, the leaked documents show that the early batches of Pfizer's COVID-19 vaccine did not meet the actual manufacturer specifications. Now, I will put a full link to this below. And as I said, this is only one report. Apparently, there's a lot of documents, so we don't know exactly what's here. We know that there were issues with the integrity um, of the RNA, mRNA vaccines. We also know that the EMA eventually uh, classed those vaccines as being, as, as authorized them for use. The EMA says that was due to new data that was shown to the EMA. There is, however, an argument that um, that's not actually the case and that it was due to immense amounts of political pressure being put onto the EMA to authorize these vaccines. And there was an immense amount of political pressure on them to do so. So it's just, it's as I said, it's, it's still developing. It's, we don't know what's going to come out here. And this is, I think, the first story the BMJ has done based on the leaked material. But I just wanted to highlight it because it looks like there is stuff in there about political pressure being put on the EMA. Some other websites have reported it, saying that they have seen the documents. But they're not websites that I would feel as comfortable of the editorial standards of. If the BMJ is reporting it, the BMJ will have gone through it with a fine tooth comb. And they're not going to say something that's medically unsound, or they're not going to say something based on a per understanding of the science. So I just wanted to focus on what the BMJ have said. Now, they, they do mention, I think it's in November, there's an email which says that the uh, RNA content had now gone back up to 70-75%. And I think the quote was, they are now cautiously optimistic that further data will help towards a confirmation of this. The BMJ, I think, is the tone of the art is that there are questions to be answered. There are issues that have been raised here. This in, we need more information. We need more clarity. Um, they don't come, I wouldn't say, to a definitive conclusion. Um, this is very technical stuff. I've just been reading the, just the basic stuff there today. Um, I'm in absolute, I'm no way qualified to give an opinion, but uh, Gary says, listen, it's in the BMJ, which is like, it's up there with the England Journal of Medicine and the Lancet. It's a very serious and authoritative journal. But on the other hand, if there are questions about the safety and the stability of the vaccines, particularly the MRA, and I think Gary, it's right to say that we, or we should qualify that this is, they're talking about Pfizer specifically and the MRA vaccines rather than, say, uh, vaccines like, say, Sputnik or AstraZeneca, which use a different it's a different type of vaccine. Yeah, the, they are talking specifically about the Pfizer vaccine here. They're also saying that they're not saying that there are safety issues. The emails are saying that they're unsure what the actual impact upon safety and efficiency would be due to these issues. 
And the EMA has said that, look, things we were shown later made us confident in it. It is, I think part of the problem with this debate is that it's happened entirely in secret. And so now when this comes out, there's no public source of information people can go to and actually go, well, what, uh, what did you receive later? And, you know, that could just clarify the issue. There is instead just... The EMA has said that the, the leaked information is... Um, the individual emails are authentic, but that some of the data was aggregated and screenshots from multiple folders were um, were created and titles were added to some of it. Now, that to me doesn't sound like the material was heavily doctored. It sounded like the material was aggregated more so. Could have been heavily doctored, but... It gives the EMA a degree of cover to just say it was doctored and not say what was doctored. Aggregated is problematic there in that aggregated could mean something fairly innocuous as regards the way that emails were treated, or it could mean something substantial. But there's there's a there's a wide there's a wide uh, there's a big gap there that it could that from one side to the other could from being something substantial to being something rather serious. So what that precisely means we don't know. As this speaks to, uh, I don't suppose it's a new problem, but it seems to be a particular problem with a lot of debate around a lot of stuff that's happening now, where one of the reasons I think that this won't come out is that there's a fear that if this comes out, what this this will roll into, as I was saying, I referred to earlier, you know, to the, the anti-vaxxer groups and it will give them ammunition. But that's not a good enough reason not to do things. But just because something may be used illicitly or incorrectly or in bad faith by a group of people that you don't like or you who you feel actually are misinformed and, and indeed potentially dangerous, that's not a good enough reason not to have a discussion or a debate about something which is actually important. You have to... And the more... And the more you hide these things, the more you keep them. Eventually, when they do come out, and they will come out, they always come out, then it just looks like, oh, the other crowd were right all the time. They've been saying for ages, oh, there's all these hidden documents, and the safety procedures weren't followed, and they've suppressed all of these issues, and there's a great conspiracy going on. And then you you behave in a way which, by not using the to use the cliche, the disinfecting, the, the disinfecting power of sunlight to bring these things out as they happen and to discuss them and to explain them to people insofar as you can. If, when you don't do that, then all you do is give power to the, to the conspiratorial paranoid narratives that people on the fringes ha, are trying to sell. And it's not just in this area. That's, this is, it's lots of other areas as well. I think it's been something we've seen from media and government, it's increased dramatically over, I'd say, the last 10, 15 years. The willingness to treat citizens as you know, things that need to be protected from bad information as well, Michael. Like, you don't report certain things because it might empower certain groups or might raise questions about other things. So you just, you don't report it. But as you said, the problem then is, then when it eventually gets out, those people are going to think you have lied to them. And all you've done is you've empowered the other narrative. Well, that's the thing. Because if it, was, if it wasn't an issue, why wouldn't you just talk about it? I mean, on something like this, I'm absolutely not qualified to tell you what any of this means. So, I mean, I just 
as I said, it's just one of those things I wanted to mention because there may be some evidence of potential issues here. I would suspect if there is, it won't be with the actual vaccine uh, efficiency directly. It will be with political pressure being put on the EMA. And as I said, other websites have that have apparently received the documents have commented on it. We haven't written about it in Grip yet, so this and I'm I'm not sure when we will. I've asked a couple of reporters who have the documents, can I see them? Because while I don't, I, you know, absolutely not qualified to analyse any of the contents, I can at least look at it and go, the following quote was actually said. Now, I would trust the BMJ to do all of that myself, but this is a fairly fraught area and I'm not comfortable doing much on it without actually seeing some of the source documents. Because you don't know, there's always the possibility, you know, something is faked or something just was misread or translated improperly. Something like the EMA would have would have had conversations. English would be the working language, but it, you know, they could easily have documents or emails that aren't in it and then translated across. And But look, it's, as I said, it's just something to mention, something to be aware of, because you're not children and it's potentially impactful and therefore you should uh, know about it. One concern I do have, Michael, on, on the subject of the media deciding what people can actually hear about is that with any medical advance, there's the potential of something going wrong. And it doesn't look to be the case so far, but it should be reported. And my concern here is that if it's a case where people, the media is concerned about empowering particular voices, particularly anti-vax voices, they will not report on material that, if reported properly, would, would actually highlight potential issues before they arise. The problem here, Gary, just as a practical thing, is that media tends to be very bad at reporting science or medical stuff. Say you get a couple of newspapers, not in Ireland, but in other countries, but it might happen, that have decided for whatever reasons to take a slightly slightly vaccine-sceptic position, you know, or they just have recognised that bad news sells newspapers and fear and terror sells newspapers. I can perfectly well imagine newspapers running with headlines saying, vaccines suspended because of blood clot deaths, you know. And I think it's fine to run those stories as long as if it happens that having examined the incidents that you discovered that actually the cases were unconnected and that the incidence of blood clotting is within or below the normal occurrence in the general population, you follow it up with also a front page story saying vaccine cleared, blood clots not a problem. And that is probably a naive expectation or desire but in a case in a situation like we're in today i think that's what you have to expect from a newspaper if they're going to behave responsibly you have to give the same weight to the bad news story and the good news story because it's sunday we thought we would talk about the uh, churches michael and not just the churches shall we say the application of law so there was an interesting uh, blog post. It was published by a professor of law in Trinity called Aaron Doyle. Now, Aaron Doyle is someone I've run across before. And if you're interested in the lockdowns and you read any of the submissions to the government, you might have come across his uh, name before because he had written some submissions on this idea of what constituted a reasonable excuse. And he had said, before the government wrote that into law, that it was a terrible idea because it was so vague and so open to interpretation. And he actually argued for a stricter legal requirement, 
which he said would actually increase personal liberty because then people would at least know what they can do and it wouldn't be up to the guards to decide that's a reasonable excuse that isn't. But he published a um, a blog post and Trinity also published it. And it's called Religious Services and the Rule of Law, Authority and Coercion. What it is, is an examination of what are the actual restrictions on organising or attending religious services. And it turns out that um, what we have been told the restrictions are and what guards have been telling people the the restrictions are and what politicians have been implying the restrictions are may not actually be the restrictions that are in place when one actually reads the law. And he basically said that um, as things stand, organising or attending a religious service would almost certainly come under the legal protections that are in place and would not be a breach of the lockdown restrictions at all. Which is a bit of a problem. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, this came in the context as well, I think, or... I don't know if it was the same day, but it was very close to it, that um, a priest hadn't been celebrating Mass, but was giving communion out to some parishioners. I know there was, a, in certain places, for, there had been a, a, a practice where people who, you can go to church um, by yourself and pray, I mean, as long as you, there's no service going, and you maintain social distancing, etc. And in that context, it, it was happening that a priest would give communion to people and also, if they wanted, they could bring a small pix with them and they could bring communion away with them to give, say, if they had um, a person in their home who was either, just because of their general state of health, not getting out, not capable of going, or was restricted or isolated or quarantined or something, they could bring communion home and give them, give them communion. And a priest was involved in doing this and the guards intervened and stopped it happening and i remember it's it's it, before i had before this this story broke this is something actually gary we've been talking about before i don't know if we talked about it on air but that several times people would say to me, x y or z oh well of course they were breaking the law and i my response on a few of these is, what law which law where's the law what how would it, it i think there's a lot of confusion and that's understandable about what precisely is a law, what is a regulation, what is a piece of public health advice, what falls under the guard's individual discretion. I mean, a principle of law, one of the principles of the application of justice is that the citizen should know a re- if in reasonably, or shall we say, the man on the back of the clap, clapping on me, the or that there's the, the, the a reasonable person should be capable of knowing if he or she is actually breaking the law or not. And there are, I think, in their cases at the moment in this, where it is not clear. And in this, however, in the case that we're talking about, I, I was working on the assumption that it was clear because everybody had been saying very explicitly that it was not allowed. But precisely what, under what provision of the law it was not allowed maybe was unclear. But you just assumed that they knew but we'll get on maybe just just at the end about that, that we, we maybe have higher expectations of politicians' knowledge of what the law is and what the law means than we than is in fact the is in fact the case. Professor Doyle is particularly scathing towards uh, the Department of Health and politicians as to what they've said of it. He calls one of the statements given by the Department of Health on the actual 
restrictions in place for religious events, he says it is a masterpiece of misdirection. And that in the first three paragraphs, the government sets out the legal position. And we will, of course, link to this blog post below. He says the first three paragraphs give the correct legal position, a position. And then it goes on to, he says, use language which appears calculated to create the opposite impression that there are mandatory and therefore by implication legal requirements. And then he, he later also says that the core of the government's response in general, not in, just in relation to religious events, but in general, their response to um, communicating to citizens the restrictions they must abide by, they say, um, he says that the core of their response is confusion over to the extent to which activities are restricted, rather than clearly distinguish between what citizens are required to do and what they are requested or advised to do. Government statements frequently encourage people to believe that their legal obligations are more restrictive than is in fact the case. I'm just curious here. I mean, do we have any sense of why it is that we have, shall we say, advice pretending to be prescription? Is it because the government recognizes that there are things they would like to be prescriptive about, but they feel that they can't because if it was tested constitutionally, they wouldn't be able to actually sustain that prescription. In the case of religious services, the Constitution certainly has quite strong protections for for religious practice. Is that the concern that they actually they they're pretending to be prescriptive, but they're not being prescriptive because they don't feel the law would stand up to scrutiny? I don't know. I I don't know. I wouldn't be surprised if he thought that that was the case. We know that Declan Ganley has is taking a case to the courts uh, about this. Which has been long, which has been remanded. Well, I don't know, remanded in the case of a case like this is the correct word. That's the thing, Michael. Let's say, let's say that'll be an incredibly expensive case as well. But let's say he gets to the court, and the court simply points out that there's no legal restriction in place. It's a massive waste of time. It's a massive waste of money. Yes, and you can't win because there's nothing there. Except, I suppose, that if the court says, "Well, actually, there are no legal restrictions," then you, the, the government, has a choice. They either have to admit, well, actually, we're just asking you not to do this, but we can't make you not do it, or they actually have to go about creating an actual legal framework to stop people doing it. I I mean, cynics would say that what's happening is the court doesn't really want to have to address the issue, so they're long-fingering it in the hope that by the time they actually have to deal with it, the question will, will be mute because people will be back at church anyway. Surely, Michael, you're not suggesting that an Irish court would act in a political fashion. I'm not saying political, but we know the courts in these cases. I mean, this, the American Supreme Court, we've seen cases do this as well, where there is a sort of, well, well, we'll push this down the line and, you know, there's a chance that the thing may resolve itself so we don't actually have to give a definitive answer on it. Courts do that. The concern of Doyle does not appear to be whether or not restrictions should be in place. Doyle himself says that he's not arguing against the restrictions and there may be arguments for, for stricter restrictions. What he is saying is that the law should be the law. And that there is a real question here of, if we're just going to, just effectively going to lie to people or and mislead them into thinking what their legal obligations are, that does not seem just. So, I mean, here's here's another line from him. The strategy often appears to be to set the legal restrictions at a certain level, imply a higher level of restriction through misleading pronouncements, 
to the public and then allow legally ungrounded threats of prosecution to bring people in line with the higher level of restrictions. Which strikes me as the sort of thing that would worry a law professor, regardless of whether or not they cared about whether churches should open. Yeah, and there is the element here that, not that I imagine it was sought by the guards, but the guards are being put in the position of having to make decisions on the spot about whether or not somebody is doing something which is reasonable or unreasonable. Now, the problem with that is, that's giving discretionary power to the guards that really the guards shouldn't have. Because, again, I said, one of the things that's a principle of justice is that the citizen should know whether or not they are breaking the law. Another principle for the application of justice is that the law should be predictable, that it should be constant and consistent, that the same actions should produce the same outcomes in law. And inevitably, if you're going to give discretionary powers to individual guards to make decisions regarding, say, travel or whatever, uh, whether or not something is reasonable or unreasonable, you're going to get inconsistencies of application of the law. Some people in some guards will accept something as being reasonable, whereas another guard may not. Or the responses of, again, the threat, I mean, the application of fines, I mean, we're talking about two and a half thousand euro fines. By the way, I don't know if this is connected, possibly not. I don't know if you saw the story, was it today in the Times? The government is no longer asking people for why they are travelling. You know, when people go to the airport to travel, they are no longer asking for reasons why. I'm not even, I'm, you know, I will. Why? Why are they not asking? I don't know. But maybe somebody said, well, maybe somebody said, well, actually, we don't really have uh, the power to do that. Maybe that we have no, there's no legal basis for us to do that. And there's no legal basis for us to apply sanction. It's also interesting that this came out a year into the lockdown. Yes. Because it was the case. It was always the case. But I have noticed a, um, shall we say, growing willingness amongst people in general to start saying things like, um, you know, all of that stuff we did. Parts of it may not have been exactly legal. Yeah. Yeah, not not exactly legal. When we did all that stuff, we never actually did like a cost-benefit analysis. We just kind of assumed it was the right thing to do, and we just wanted to mention that to you now for just for no reason, just so you know. It was like was it David Quinn asked the question uh, at one stage on what empirical basis or data were the restrictions regarding worship based? At the time, I think. In Europe, and that by which he meant the, it was the continent rather than the EU, Ireland and Slovenia were the only two countries that had actually imposed a ban on all religious services. And David asked the question: Was well, what was what, what what on what basis is this being imposed? What data? Because there had been some data which suggested that religious services were not actually didn't figure in as 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 loci of contagion or or spread. Which kind of makes us in the basis that one of the things we're told now that is the most important thing is, is ventilation. These tend to be very uh, airy, high ceiling buildings. They have very strict rules regarding numbers and social distancing and so on. But there was, it was the, the, the response, well, there was actually no response to, the, to my memory regarding data, but rather a sense of, ah, well, it seems like a sensible thing to do which I think a lot of the time is another way of saying it seemed like something to do. I tell you, it's also interesting, the cat, I don't know if you've seen, there was some stuff which has reappeared, just, I, I, I can't imagine it's a coincidence, since the publication, the wider publication of this blog, from a group of uh, 
lay Catholics, I think, saying that they have been in consultation with some bishops and priests. And there seems to be nothing explicit yet, but seems to be a, 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 an implication of, well, you know what, we've been talking to people and we're kind of fed up with this. We're just going to do something. There may be direct action of the kind we haven't seen since the good old penal days, which some people like to refer to in, in moments of high rhetoric about these restrictions. So who knows? Easter is coming, Gary. And it, let's face it, we, I think we, we adverted to it before. The first time in the discussions when they're talking about restrictions on religious services, they were talking about that they would start to allow services to, to continue to reopen on Easter Monday. And that did seem to be almost a, a, like a deliberate provocation to people. You know, we're not going to allow you to go to church on Good Friday, Easter Saturday or, Sun, or Easter Sunday. But, we're, you know, Easter Monday, fine, you can go back then. Because the difference of three days would make no, that's vital. And there are for very good sound scientific reasons why it has to be the Monday and not the Thursday. Yes, like when we said that you were at risk if you spent more than 15 minutes with someone or the substantial meal provisions, or initially when we said masks would hurt you. Uh, we haven't had a great track run in public health the last while. And then there's been the one metre and the one and a half metre and the two metre. And as you said, the 15 minutes, which is two hours if you're in school. That just reminds me of remember when we first came out with the five level plan. And then we immediately, immediately announced that Dublin as what it was like... It was level maybe 2 or 3.5. Yeah. And you're just like, I don't think you understand the point of a levelled plan. <laughs> you don't you don't build one and then immediately realise after you've published it, it actually doesn't work. And yet we did. Actually, speaking of, um, speaking of, Michael, of um, confusion over laws, did you see Neve Humphreys? She had some interesting PQs in there recently. Uh, Neve Smith, Fianna uh, Fáil from Cavan Monaghan, who was asking, uh, she asked some questions. She asked questions, Neve Smith, she's a Fianna Fáil uh, TD from Cavan Monaghan, speaking, speaking to Heather Humphreys. I read it very quickly. The, the, there are three questions, five, 75, 76, 77, to ask the Minister, uh, the, the Minister for Employment and Social Protection. I won't repeat that. If Gender Recognition of Act of 2015 means that a man who self-identifies as a woman is entitled to access any and all female-only spaces and services, and if she'll make a statement on the matter, to ask the Minister if the Act means that a man is entitled to have her tran their transgender belief that they identify as a woman outweigh the right of a woman or a girl to object to the presence in a female-only space, and to ask the Minister if the Act means that a man who self-identifies as a woman is perceived by this legislation to be safe to access female-only spaces irrespective of the physiological differences between male and female bodies. Now, there were three questions, now, and there are three interesting questions. The response of the Minister is, I propose to take the questions together. These questions seek an interpretation of the law. The deputy will appreciate that as a minister, I am not in a position to offer any such interpretation as such matters are reserved for the courts. Now, oh, can I just make a couple of observations? First of all, the Gender Recognition Act was introduced in 2015 by Fine Gael government, uh, of which Heather Humphrey 
was part under Francis Fitzgerald was minister at the time. Andy Kenny was the issue. Then in 2017, in September 2017, uh, the act was amended. Uh, Charlie Flanagan was then was minister for uh, justice, and Heather Humphreys was sitting at the cabinet table when the, the act was amended. What the, the minister is saying is, all we do is write the laws. We can't be expected to know what they mean. It's also her answer is incorrect. So you have three questions. The first one is just a matter of law. The second one, you could argue that there's an aspect of opinion there, but it is primarily a matter of law. The third one, that is a matter of opinion and actually not for the courts to decide at all, um, or at least not in any normal. Because the first one asks, a man who self-identifies as a woman is entitled to access any and all female-only spaces and services, to which the answer is yes to the degree any other female would be able to access those spaces. So if it's a general female-only space, absolutely, legally, yes, they would be entitled. That's the answer. There's no court required there. There would be you know, restrictions for clubs and things, but in the general sense of things, absolutely. The second one, they say a man is entitled to have their transgender belief that they identify as a woman outweigh the right of a woman or girl to object to their presence in a female-only space. That would also be on the fact of it. Yes, it is, because the law says they are now a woman. So yes. you would have no right to remove them from the space if someone objected, because that would be discrimination on the grounds of sex, as the Act affirms it. So that uh, two of those questions are just, there's no ambiguity, there's no courts required. The third one, which is, you know, a man who self-identifies as a woman is perceived uh, to be safe to access female-only spaces, that's either not for the court or that's a personal opinion, maybe. I suppose, a, you know, maybe a court would consider it if a case came up that was in some way related, but it doesn't immediately strike me as something for the courts. What this really is, is Heather Humphreys going, I don't want to answer these questions. Or Heather Humphrey not knowing, which would be deeply worrying because you can, it's a very simple very simple series of questions. But irrespective of, shall we, frankly, irrespective of the specific questions, and actually, the three questions are essentially the same question. She's just rephrasing, in, she's putting, you know, in this case or in that case. But actually, the question is the same. Does, does the Gender Recognition Act do what it says it does? Which is to say that somebody who previously said they were, was believed to be uh, a man by the state is now believed to be a woman. And if you're believed to be a woman, well, then you have exactly all of the rights and entitlements of a, of any other kind of woman in the state. And there is, I mean, that was the point of the legislation. Now, it is absolutely madness on the face of it to say, a politician, a minister to say, a legislator to say, that we just make up the laws. We don't know what they mean. That's not our job. When she knows precisely what the law means, and in each of these cases, all of these these particular issues were adverted to and were considered, and either positively or in other cases, were produced as warnings. You know, this is what this legislation will do, and the, 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 there was no problem with that. Nobody had an issue with it. That's what these. That was the purpose of it. Which is why I mean, the context. I think I imagine one of the issues because it be, it became something of a of an issue there in the last little while was uh, is it in Limerick Prison there are 30 spaces reserved for women and of those 30 spaces three are occupied uh, by people who now identify as women who had not previously so done I thought it was two is it three now I thought it was three and of whom two had been convicted of sexual crimes sexual offense sexual assaults that fits the general pattern. And therefore might make the other women feel perhaps unsafe. But it's just how this didn't make 
the papers and genuinely front page. It's comedy. It is and it's not because it's this particular issue. If it was any issue, can you imagine somebody? I don't know. The Minister for Transport, and there were three, three asking three questions about something to do with uh, legislation regarding speed limits or something. And they just introduced, the minister had been responsible or been part of the government which introduced new legislation dealing specifically with issues around speed limits. And does this mean this, will the act do this, will the act do that? They say, oh, I, I don't know. Oh, God. I, I, should we find out? Should we find out when the, somebody asks a judge? That's just nonsense. The deputy will appreciate that I am a minister. I am not in a position to any, offer any such interpretation, as such matters are reserved for the courts. That legislation that you you frame and write, you are not in a position to have an opinion about what the consequences or the outcomes or the meaning of that legislation is. That's just fucking Humpty Dumpty. This is that's Alice in Wonderland nonsense. I like the way you your concern is that it's obviously nonsense, and my concern is that it's just not even right. <laughs> Like if you're gonna if you're gonna if you're gonna bullshit your way through something like this, at least give an answer that's plausible. It's funny. It's actually funny. And she sat at the she sat at the cabinet table, and presumably they had a discussion about the the amendment. I don't know. Charlie maybe did it home and a a a a run by himself on it. I don't know. But <laughs> I think this is pretty... no no no. Ministers can't be held responsible for legislation that they that their government wrote and passed into law that would that would be a madness gary what kind of country would it be if you were going around expecting governments to know what the consequences of their legislation were going to be i mean i will i will say michael from the conversation we just had about the nature of the actual law related to lockdown and restrictions heather humphreys is going to be a fantastic fit as acting justice minister for the next six months perfect she would be absolutely perfect you won't take a karma offer. Listen, we are this. This is, in a sense, the, the 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 explicit embodiment of what we were talking about before, where governments just wander around doing things, but actually <laughs> are willing to pretend they don't really know what they're talking about at all. When in fact, they may not actually know what they're talking about. At the same time, they they think they're pretending, but they're not actually pretending. There are so many levels of absurdity and surrealness to this. It God, you could. You could write a novel about it. In in Doyle's article, he makes the point that um, despite all the apparent confusion of this, whenever a time has come where the government has had to state it correctly, what he, he terms accountability moments, where there could be legal proceedings or something of the case, the government has stated the restrictions perfectly accurately, ah. which indicates that... Oh no, they're they're fully aware of what actually is in place. They're just lying to you. Which again, Michael, strikes me as, shall we say, a bit short sighted, because if it ever comes out that you've been, let's say, wildly misleading people about certain restrictions, it uh, it may may, Michael, damage levels of public compliance with those restrictions. That is true. However, as you know, Gary, as a general principle with Irish politicians, I always like to give them the benefit of the doubt in these situations. And I like to believe that they're lying or are corrupt. Rather, because in Ireland, the, the choice is usually either lying, corrupt, or just thick as slurry. And I'm always hopeful that they're lying and corrupt. Because at least if they're lying and corrupt, there is the possibility that they might, in other areas of life, be competent. 
Whereas if they're thick and slurry, they're just thick and slurry. What I actually really love about this is that like Doyle was talking about harsher restrictions or, or, or more stringent restrictions that would be, you know, as he said, it would actually increase liberty because at least you'd know what you can do. So it sort of looks like the government could have put everything they wanted into law and they just didn't bother. And instead of going back and just, you know, expanding the law, they just sort of went, ah, we'll just wing it. I wonder maybe if they there were... It, maybe there were certain things that they wanted to do that they couldn't do under the law, and that they felt that if they just if they had enough ambiguity, vagueness, and confusion about the whole thing, they'd be able to package it generally, and just nobody would question the particulars. What you know is is obviously going to build public trust. Michael is a creation of an atmosphere of deliberate confusion and misunderstanding, which eventually it will become clear that you are deliberately causing. As regards public trust and confidence, you know, regarding the, the the nature of the implementation of the lockdowns, I, I think that particular board, if it hasn't actually flown, it's fledging. And more to the point, if, as I suspect, the next few weeks, we are not going to see massive improvements in numbers being vaccinated, the... Uh, the public's anger at the failure to vaccinate them is going to outweigh whatever loss of faith they might have because of some bungling in the in the rules regarding the lockdown. So I think it's a question, Gary, not so much of the fact that one thing might hang them, but it's a question of the order in which they will be hung. Will they be hung for this, this or that? But they're going to be hung anyway. Oh, Michael, you want to talk about something going badly wrong with the vaccine program? I've got a new one for you. Go on. The HSE has expanded to start uh, vaccinating what are called Cohort 4. Cohort 4 are those, they're, they're classed as a high-risk group, people with significant underlying conditions that would not be classed in the other groups. So they're not elderly, they're not in, um, they're not in long-term care facilities, they're not health, healthcare workers, but they are classed, for whatever reason, as being at high risk of... Um, yeah, an, an fat people. Thing. Not just fat people, but yes, fat people. No, but fat people are the most important because that's me. And for years, people have been saying, you see, that's a bad thing. Whereas now it turns out it was a clever strategy all the time. I don't know, Michael. I feel after a year, the response of the department should be, you know, when it started, you were high risk, but now you're just lazy. <laughs> if you were really that concerned, you'd have lost some weight. By the way... In order to qualify, you have to have a BMI of 40 or higher. So if you're out there and you're wondering how fat you have to be, that's how fat you have to be. If you have a body mass index, which is 40 or higher, you are you are, you are are part of this new cohort. So they started doing this cohort. So some people in it are just fat. Some people are severely at risk. And there's a, there's a spread in it. They had said that... This week, they would do 10,000 people. Now, we only have the data up to Wednesday. But do you know where they were on Wednesday, Michael? I wanted to say Ballyshock, but I presume that's not the question. Go on. Where were they on Wednesday, Gary? So they've got a target of 10,000 by Sunday. The weekends have been terrible every week. So they need to get this done kind of Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. As of close of business Wednesday, 624 people in that cohort had been vaccinated. That does not make me happy, Bonnie. We will be back on Wednesday. All the best. Bye-bye.